So Brandon's sick. He was going to be here this morning. So I told him everybody may be so disappointed they throw me out. But if you'll bear with me, we'll uh, endeavor. We're uh, continuing our study of Christology, the deity of Christ, and the evidences for the deity of Christ um, uh, in the works of God that are performed by Christ. And today, we're going to look at um, the work of judgment. So you can kind of scan those headings and, and uh, uh, see how it's categorized. This is by no means exhaustive, because as you're probably aware, the Scripture speaks of the judgment of God and the judgment of Christ just uh, um, uh, over and over and over and over again. Um, so I just tried to do a survey and a summary. Come in, Mrs. Haney, no problem. Come in, Mrs. Henry, Mr. Henry. <laughs> Welcome back, weary travelers. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I was just saying we're, we're uh, going to look at, as evidence for Christ's deity, the, uh, another work of, that's attributed to God proper in the Old Testament that we see in the New Testament being ascribed as um, being performed by Christ. So, and that is judgment. And, oh, you don't have papers. Yeah. Just announce, now announce now that they're... Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I didn't know what you mean. I was like, well, they're already in here. But <laughs> at the beginning of the new one, I gotcha. All right. And hopefully I'll get my act together and and uh, um, make use of this fine new TV that we have and put scriptures up here where we won't need these. But Brandon was supposed to teach, and he, the only reason he isn't is he got sick and didn't want to spread it around. So kind of the last thing. Uh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Appreciate that. Um, I kind of threw this together. So to do the PowerPoint was just a bit much um, time-wise. So anywho, let's jump in. Um, this um, uh, concluding statement to the book of Ecclesiastes uh, sums up God's prerogative to judge very well, I think. It's a good place to jump in. Tim, I'm going to turn this way and shut you out, didn't I? Um, <clears throat> remember this, after all those wise observations... Um, by Solomon and, and all that uh, despair and, and um, uh, assessing the nature of life in a sin-cursed world, uh, Solomon concludes this way, verse 13, Here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Well, why would that be? Well, see, within that is an acknowledgement of God's reign and God's rule over all of his creation. And since he's the sovereign, since he's the one who sits on the anthropomorphic throne, um, then the whole duty of his creation, and particularly of those who bear his image, is to serve him. Right? And kind of see that represented in the language um it, remember, it's Old Covenant context, but in that language of fear God and obey Him, or fear God and keep His commandments. Now, 
with that foundation, what does that have to do with judgment? Well, first we have to establish whose rightful authority it is um, and, and to whom everyone owes obedience and service. And then verse 14, for, we see the connection here, God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. So again, God's the king, it's his rules, it's his reign, therefore, it's his place, it's his prerogative to judge. Because we live in an age of like representative government and democracy, and at least in our society, we, we tend to not think of kings as judges, we tend to think of those as separate offices. But that wasn't the case, you know, in most of the history of the world and certainly not in the ancient world. You know, the, 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 the uh, bigger cases, think of Solomon judging between the women who were disputing over the, whose child it was when one of them had died. They see, they brought it to Solomon and he made the judgment. Um, so ultimately then, God's universe, he created it. He's the sovereign. It's his to judge. Um, we see that affirmed in Psalm 9, the next one down. Um, and then specifically, I want you to see that the Lord there is in all caps. This will be important later. Who sits enthroned forever? Yahweh, right? Yahweh sits enthroned forever. Um, those few words there are very important as we examine Christ's uh, um, um, deity later in the sense of judging. He, Yahweh, has established his throne for what end? For justice. See, that's the language of making right judgments, meeting out righteous decrees um, and uh, um, judgments. Verse 8, and he judges the world. Again, he's not a territorial deity. He judges everything in righteousness and he judges all the peoples is the implication not just Israel. It goes beyond the borders of Israel. Israel's God judges all the peoples with uprightness. So his just his judgment is impeccable. It's pure. It's true. It never errs. It's always exact. Um, and then uh, we see kind of the superlative nature of God's judgment again in Psalm 50. The next one down. Um says that the heavens declare his righteousness um, for God himself is judge. At first glance, I think it, it seems like those two phrases on either side of the comma don't have much to do with each other. But again, when we consider it um, kind of building upon the thought in the previous psalm that the Lord judges the whole world in righteousness, he judges all the people's, well, here it expands out to the entire created universe, to the heavens or to the cosmos. He says, they all declare um, his righteousness. Why? Because he himself, God himself, notice that language, is the judge of all of creation, of everything that is not himself, he will judge. Um, so a bit of superlative there. Now, um, look at that next heading. Because I think this is important for us to understand. It, it gets a little off subject, but it does come back into play when we look at 
uh, the judgment of Christ. Um, but notice how his judgment is twofold. Because when we think of judgment, do we think positive or negative? We think negative, right? Because that's that our 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 uh, our judgments are usually punitive, like they punish for crime. If we go before a judge, it's because you've been accused of doing something wrong. Okay, and biblically, this is not the case. Now, let me qualify that. I don't mean that God's judgments aren't punitive. I'm saying they're not exclusively punitive. Okay, it's twofold. Um, and uh, let's look at this. Uh, so verse 6, and there's something of the exclusivity here in verse 6 too of God's judgment. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. So in other words, it doesn't come from anywhere else, any other direction, any other place. But verse 7, it is God who executes judgment. And look at the nature, both putting down one punitive and lifting up another. See, So it's his judgment is both giving proper reward to what's due and, and executing out punishment for what's due, right? So for justice, for true justice to be, you have to both give what's due in the sense of reward and give what's due in the sense of punishment. Okay, and and this is very important to us because when we tend to think of that, what are our what are our minds already automatically go? Well, there's no one good, right? So, like when we speak of God rewarding, like we have a conundrum or. Parent, at least a paradox. Like, how can he reward? Well, there is one good, right? So, yeah. So, if God is just, he'll reward the merits of Christ and upon all those who are joined to Christ and who are in union with Christ. So, um, we need to not just throw off these Old Testament passages and say, well, that was just works righteousness in the Old Testament. No, it wasn't at all. God hasn't changed. It, but it does create a tension that's only resolved at the cross, right? <laughs> when we see God's in his judge, justice, his pure impeccable justice, does reward positively in judgment. Um, and those who are identified with Christ, who are under the headship of Christ, are rewarded for the merits and righteousness of Christ, not their own. Um, and again, substitution. Anywho, way too long on that. Verse 8, um, so positive, negative, definitely the negative here. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine. You remember that from a few weeks ago? I can't even remember if that was in here or something else. Might have been a Wednesday night thing. Okay. So that, that's that imagery of the cup of the wrath of God um, that people are forced to drink. And he says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And look, all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And so we see the absolute nature of God's judgment. It's inescapable and every single ounce of it will be meted out and received. And of course, let me remind you there where 
what did Christ pray in the garden? Yeah, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And if it can't, if the redemption of your people, me paraphrasing, can't be accomplished any other way, then I'll drink it. And indeed, he did drink it down to the dregs and satisfied God's justice. His judgment was meted out um, for us on him. Uh, uh, a few, couple more uh, to, to see the twofold nature there. Psalm 82, 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth. And then look, interesting thing. What's the result of that judgment? You shall inherit the nations. You see that? So you speak of God's judgment, you speak of his rule and his reign, and of course you had all those territorial deities um, uh, in the ancient world and up through even close to the modern times. And he's like, uh, no, God's reign is going to extend, and, his, and in the exercising of his judgment, there's going to be this positive accrual of the nations to his lordship and under his sovereignty. And of course... This is related uh, to whom were the nations promised as an inheritance in Psalm 2, I think, or Psalm 22, one of those. You remember? To the Messiah, right? Ask of me and I'll give you the nations as an inheritance. Remember how Satan tempted Jesus? Right? He said, I'll give you the nations if you worship me. He, he knew that was his messianic inheritance his claim of lordship would be over all peoples not just the jews he said you know disobey god as eve had done and adam had done and i'll give you a shortcut to the to the nations he said well no you know um, um, his faithfulness was to god um but i just want you to see here as a side note who's inheriting the nations arise oh god Right, judge the earth. And it, it's small, but I love those little nuances. Um, and look at this. This will certainly come into play later. Uh, Ezekiel 34. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, who, who judges? I. Who's I there? The Lord God. I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Um, uh, so just keep that in mind for later. God's the one who's uh, uh, said to, to perform that separation. Um, now, let's look at this idea of, of a day of judgment briefly. Um, I'm trying to set up all these factors that, that, um, uh, that are necessary, all these aspects of judgment that are necessary to sort of understand the the New Testament language that's employed uh, regarding Christ's judgment. So that's why we're going to the specific places we are, albeit briefly. For the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. And that's just a few verses later in the text. So continuing the thought, says the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So two things I want to point out from that verse. One is that, um, uh, and this is 
replete in the Old Testament um, that that uh, there's a day promise. We'll actually talk about that in the sermon this morning somewhat. But there's a day promised in which God is going to vindicate his righteousness. Right? There's a right now it looks like sin is allowed to persist. Evil men and women are allowed uh, um, um, to go on unpunishment, but there's always that promise that God has fixed a day, and 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 when that day comes, the judgment will be inescapable, and and all um, everyone will receive what is due. We'll look at that more, um, but look at the result in the second one, verse 17. There, the result of that judgment is that the haughty and proud will be brought low. And who will be exalted? Yahweh, right? God will be exalted. Who else with God will be exalted? Oh, look in the text. You're jumping ahead. Yeah, we look at we do that. The Lord alone will be exalted, right? This is very important. Um, and uh, this is how the, the Trinitarian formulations are just inescapable if we want to reconcile all these things. Um, and, and, of course, God's justice and his goodness will be vindicated on that day and his name will be exalted. Now, let's, let's jump into uh, uh, Jesus. And here um, I've entitled that Jesus the, the executor of judgment. I guess you could equally say executor of judgment, but I mean it in the sense of an executor, one who who um, is commissioned to carry out a testament or a, a, a will, if you will. Um, so we're going to see a graduation is, is my premise is, is that Jesus is the one that's appointed by God proper um, to be the, the means of executing his judgment, which even there is hard to uh, uh, to assert without saying he shares in the divine essence okay because only one as pure as god himself could carry out that justice uh, properly right and, and properly establish that righteousness but it will graduate to where we see uh, uh, jesus himself as that same exclusive judge. Um, but let's uh, look at that. Acts 17, this is Paul in Athens. Um, great text. Um, but he makes this statement. Um, has tons of implications. The times of ignorance God overlooked. And he, what he's referring to there is the ignorance of the nations. Remember how before the cross, um, uh it would appear, if I'm understanding it correctly, that Satan had a control over all the nations except Israel. And that all the nations were prevented from, by and large, we see a few exceptions. Nineveh, Rahab, you know, you see Gentiles breaking by the power of God, breaking free from that. But by and large, the, 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 the God self-revelation only existed in Israel. And Paul's telling these Gentiles here that those times of ignorance God overlooked, meaning he allowed them to happen without, he allowed them to persist most, for the most part, without destroying these nations in judgment. 
See, so there's a, a forbearance that God has extended um, in these former times of ignorance. Of course, at the cross, we know um, that John 12, 31, now the ruler of this world is cast out. What does that mean? Right. Now, the one who had the control over the world, over the peoples, over the nations, see, he no longer has that sovereignty to where that the glory of God, the revelation of God can't expand out from the borders of Israel. See, and that's why we see the command go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to every nation, right? Um, and that's possible because of the work of the cross. And now because of that, back in Acts 17, sorry, spent way too long on that, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day. That's what we just read about in Isaiah. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. Right? Everyone, all people, everywhere. He's not a tribal or territorial deity. Right? Everyone will bow the knee before him in judgment. Um, it's that broad. And he'll judge the world in righteousness. Now look, by a man... Okay, a man whom he has appointed. And that points back to all sorts of things like Daniel and the son of man. And we don't have time for all that. Um, but who is this man? Of course, we know, but the text identifies him of this. He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, And whom is God raised from the dead? Yeah, right. The Lord Jesus. Um, it's interesting there that one of the one of the assurances of the resurrection is what we don't tend to think of it like this: the certainty of judgment. Right? <laughs> like this is it's what Paul says here. Here's here's God proving to the world, to the unbelieving world particularly, that they will face Him in judgment and be judged in righteousness. Here's the proof. He raised this man from the dead never to be, die again. And, and all the world knows it. Now they, they suppress that in their unrighteousness, but they know it. I really need to. No. That's well said. It'll testify against them. Yeah, well, that's a good point, brother. That's a real good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I mean, that's like, that's like, uh, you know, similar to Paul saying in the first few chapters of Romans, first two chapters of Romans, that like, your own morality will condemn you in the judgment because your own morality testifies to the law of God that's written on your heart as an unbelief to the conscience that's God given you. Similarly, like, yeah. Yeah. Particularly so with with uh, Easter though. That's good. Yeah. I appreciate you pointing that out. That's good. Um, we see a similar thing in Romans two. Well, I just <laughs> referred to, but um, uh, for sake of time, I'm just jumping right in the middle of the sentence there. On that day, he says, when according to my gospel. So now notice this. The, the ideal of judgment is not 
opposed to the gospel. Okay, Paul says on that day, according to my gospel, we tend to separate those out. The gospel's only about grace, and 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 it's antithetical to the law, and and it's kind of an arbitrary separation there. There is a tension, but we need to understand that the gospel too proclaims the day when God will judge the secrets of men by whom? By Christ Jesus. And again, there's a closeness there, a proximity there that that even there is super uncomfortable and, and almost impossible to explain if Jesus doesn't share in the divine nature. Um, but it isn't explicit um, as some of the other things we'll see. Look at the next one that... Uh, can't remember who is actually preaching here, uh, if it was Peter or Paul, but it's what they say from Acts 10:42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he. No, <clears throat> sorry, we need to define the pronouns or, or specify them. Who's the he? Who commanded the apostles to preach to the people? Yeah, Jesus, right? Lord Jesus. Because they're apostles, they're sent out. Sent out by who? By whom? By the king, King Jesus. And to testify that he, so then that's Christ Jesus, is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. What does that mean? Well, it's sort of a a synecdoche for uh, everybody. (laughs) No one escapes it. Um, uh, those who are alive at the time of his coming and those who have perished, as we'll see uh, soon. Uh, no one escapes it. Now, now we get to the, to the bare bones of it and we see um, the Son exalted at the judgment. And uh, we just see all these factors. This is Matthew 25. Um, and there's... I'm going to keep referring back to so many of the things that uh, that we've read. Um, it's almost mind-blowing to me. When the Son of Man comes in whose glory? His glory and all the angels with him, then who will sit on whose glorious throne? He will sit, right, on his glorious throne. Who did we see? Seated on the throne of judgment in the Old Testament, Yahweh, right? And and that Yahweh, and we saw that Yahweh would be exalted. In I can't remember which one that was, huh? Oh, I mean, I think so. <laughs> I mean, there are people who separate these out and say, well, then there's this judgment, and this judgment, and this judgment, and this judgment, um, and and that's. I don't see that in Scripture, and we'll see that from the two texts, three texts we look at going forward, um, that my argument is there's that day right. <laughs> in which God will judge the world through Christ Jesus, right? It, it's, it's, it's one climactic final judgment. Thanks for pointing that out. I forgot that that was an issue. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, so you guys understand what Tim's... You know, referring to like, well, there's the great white throne. Some say there's a great white throne judgment. There's a judgment seat of Christ. And it takes the particular 
nuanced language of the New Testament says these are separate judgments to where you can have a judgment exclusively for the nation of Israel, um, a judgment where God's justice is vindicated, a judgment for believers where they're rewarded, and just separating all these different aspects out. Um, and, and you really just have to do some gymnastics, I think, to, to and it still uh, leaves it wanting, and, and I think it strips Christ of his glory unintentionally. Nevertheless, I'm not, that's, I'm not to say that's heretical or anything like that. If you believe that, we're still brothers or sisters. Um, I'm just telling you, I don't see it. Um, and, and, and we'll see why. When a son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, that throne of exclusive judgment for God that we've seen over and over. And look, before him will be gathered how many nations? Uh, all the nations. Does that include Israel? Everybody. It's all the nations, right? Okay, so all the peoples will be gathered before the Son, as he's the Son of Man, as he sits enthroned um, uh, as the sovereign who is to judge them all. And what will he do? Now, wait, let me, I got a little thing up here. Oh, yeah, I was po pointing back to that Psalm 82.8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for he shall inherit the nations. Right? It's showing God's sovereignty over all the nations, that he reigns and rules over all. Here we see Christ being established as the, as the sovereign over all the nations. And now notice this other peculiar language. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Where did we read that before? Ezekiel 34:17, right? Thus says the Lord God, I'll judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. I mean, don't think that's accidental language. Right? There's that. And the point of it, I really probably need to go on, but the point, think about this. What a shepherd, what does the shepherd do? Well, he, he rules over and he reigns over sheep and he, and he separates out individually, right? Sheep from sheep into classes or categories and, and, and the goats are kept from the sheep and, 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 and it's his prerogative to do so because he's the shepherd. God says, I'll separate sheep from sheep in judgment, rams and male goats, etc. Here we see Jesus separating what? <laughs> yeah, right? So he's doing that individual separation. Um, now, Revelation 20. Um, so that would be one judgment to some, and this would be a separate one. I want you to see from the language of these texts, since Tim pointed that out, <laughs> how that's impossible. But look, Revelation 20, I would argue the same event. Then I saw a great white throne. So some would say, well, see, since that's the white throne, that's different. No, white means like holy. <laughs> it's symbolic of, of a holiness and purity of a judgment and righteousness. Uh and him who was seated on it, um, and I think um, all agree that this is referring to Christ, um, uh, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, 
great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Remember what we'd begun with in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, up there at the top. Who will bring every deed into judgment? God, right? So here, we're looking at, notice the similarity. The dead were judged by what was written in the books, the records of their deeds, right? According to what they had done. And the sea gave up, notice how all invasive this is, or, or pervasive this is. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So just notice what he's getting at. Like, who is escaping this judgment? No one, right? That's the, like, that's the point. He's going to sit on his throne, and everyone is going to come bow before him, either with a broken neck or with a with a um, 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 a heart of admiration, but everyone will bow to his reign and to his judgment. And then we see then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the fire. So you still have positive and negative judgments. What was the basis for the negative judgment? Yeah. And what was the basis for the positive judgment? In the book of life, right? And whose book of life? It doesn't say it here, but in a few verses it will. The Lamb's book of life, right? So so um, uh, Jesus executes judgment, but it's also those who are in united to Christ uh, who and, and those for whom he's already satisfied the judgment of God that are rewarded because of what he's done in their stead with eternal life. And all others are judged according to their deeds before a thrice holy God that sits enthroned. Amen. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Right. You see all that? Right. It's good yeah. stuff. Um, Here's another one that's often separated out as a third distinct judgment. I think when you see the inclusive language, it's not the case. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before whose judgment seat? The judgment seat of Christ. Now understand, why the different language? Well, he's writing here to a Gentile audience in the Roman Empire. And, and they understood that the emperors had a judgment seat. And when they would come and sit, that was a peculiar language to the Greco-Roman world. He was just making an analogy to something they understood and said, guess who's going to sit on the judgment seat as the potentate of even Rome? <laughs> Jesus. And guess what? We're all going to be his subjects and we're all going to appear before his judgment seat so that each one may receive what is due. Notice there's that impeccability of his justice for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, this next one is just 
I know we could spend a lot of time parsing that out, but I really want to cover this next one, at least to some degree. Um, uh, we actually looked at this last week in in the uh, the evidence of Christ's deity in the granting of eternal life, but it's so intermixed with judgment here um, that I wanted to revisit it again. Uh, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Um, and, and this is a great passage for us to give us insight into the what's called the economic relations within the Trinity. So uh, we affirm the tri- that God's nature is one God, three eternally existing and three distinct persons, but one in essence, right? Uh, one in unity. Um, but there's an economic subordination of Christ, meaning while he's equal with the Father, he voluntarily submits himself to the authority of the Father. But there's equality in essence. I know that's complicated, but here's where we get a lot of this stuff. It's passages like these. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. That in and of itself is an astounding claim for someone who's not divine. But greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, we looked at that last week, so also the Son gives life to whom what? He will. To whoever he wants. Right. You see that equality there. And... Notice the comparison again, verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to whom? To the Son, right? When we think of God proper, we always tend to think of the person of the Father, right? But, I mean, think about all those things. God judges, God judges, God judges. Jesus says, the Father judges no one. He gives the judgment to the Son, See, it just blows up. <clears throat> and look, why does the Father do that? And this shows something of the economic relations in the in the triune God. That all may honor whom? See, the Father seeks and pursues the honor of the Son. The Son seeks and pursues the honor of the Father. See, that's beautiful. And, and it necessitates a, a, a unity of essence. Um, just as, oh yeah, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. See? I mean, like, this is idolatry if, if, if the Trinity isn't true, right? Um, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, what does that tell you about any who would say, um, particularly for of unbelieving Jews or or Muslims who say we've got the same God, we just don't recognize Jesus. Yeah, he's saying you're rejecting God. Yeah, right. It's it's all or nothing. You either um, honor him for whom he is, or or um, you're rebelling against him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears whose word my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Again, there's the basis, as we saw in Revelation 20. 
He does not come into judgment. That's in a sense of, of uh, the punitive judgment that Christ has borne on our behalf, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son, right? And those who hear will live. So it's his authority that's going to call forth the dead to life. For, we saw this last week, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. <laughs> right? We looked at that last week. But if you weren't here, like you got a major problem. If it, How can they both be the source like we see, well, Genesis 1.1, who was the source of life? Who breathed life into creation? God. Okay. In John 1, who, who was the life of men? Christ. You see, see the parallels. I know that's not particularly about judgment, but since it was in here, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it glorifies, uh, um, um, uh, Christ, verse twenty-seven. But th but still, even though we see this this equality in essential being, this oneness in essential being, we see the economic subordination. This is beautiful, and it's the basis for so much of our proper theology in so many places. Twenty-seven, and He, the Father, has given Him, Jesus, the Son, authority. To execute judgment. Because. So we said how can this be? Because he's the son of man. Do not. And that's probably that reference to the, the, the kingship of Messiah. In Daniel's prophecy. The one who would come. And tear down the kingdoms of this world. And um, um, establish the kingdom of God. He says do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming. When all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the Son of Man, and see the connection to Revelation 20, and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life. See the twofold nature? Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I hear the hordes coming into the hall, but <laughs> any, uh, <clears throat> any questions? I know that's some. Uh, deep stuff, or it is for me. Okay, well, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your great grace toward us. Um, we thank you and we marvel um, and honor your impeccable righteousness. We praise you that uh, you are the judge of all the earth um, and that um, ultimately uh, you have appointed a day in which you'll judge the world through your son and Everything will be made right. And we, um, most of all, we, your people, um, uh, for whom your son has died and, and borne uh, the punishment that we deserve, uh, we praise you uh, that you've shown us that grace. Yes. Um, and that um, when we bow the knee before you, it won't be with broken necks, but with great rejoicing and marveling at your great grace. We praise you for that privilege. In his name. Amen.